walking up here just now in the rain. It's very unusual for me to be here in the rain. Um, it's usually snowing. Um, it did actually feel a little bit, little bit more like Thailand coming up here this time. Uh, many times I would have to walk through the rain to get to my hut. Um, we'll be spending the week this t on, on the wilderness teachings, as it said. Um, and I, that's my preferred title for the forest tradition, which is how it's normally known. This is the tradition in which I was trained. And as the Thai forest tradition, we tend to think of it as something very Thai. Certainly you go to Thailand and you see a lot of Thai customs being followed within the tradition. In Thailand itself, especially when the tradition got started, it was considered something of an anomaly. Um, um, John Mun used to get a lot of flack from people because he was not following Thai, Thai customs or Thai traditions. Um, and so I'd like to talk a little about that this week. In fact, the emphasis will be on the content of the teachings, and particularly areas in which the tradition had somewhat controversial or interesting, distinctive ways of discussing four main topics, um, which correspond to a list that's called the Four Noble Dhammas, which are virtue, concentration, discernment, and release. Um, the tradition itself had many interesting and distinctive ways of approaching these th four topics. Um, I'm focusing on substance rather than style. All too often when you read about the forest tradition, um, you'll hear everyone will be talking about the style. The forest monks were down-to-earth, um, straight-talking, great sense of humor, um, no-nonsense kind of people. But you very rarely hear about well, what did they actually have to say? What was distinctive about their teachings? Part of this is due to the fact that the way the Ajahns themselves taught, um, they mostly what we have of books are their Dharma talks, in which they would you know, teach a particular Dharma lesson to a particular group of people at a particular time, people with had particular needs. Um, it's very rare that you'd get any of the Ajahns who would write things down systematically. And so you get sort of you know, the teaching for one person in one talk and the teaching for another person in another talk, and they contradict each other. Ajahn Chah was was asked about this one time, and he said, well, I see someone going off the left side of the road, so I say, go right, go right. I see someone going off the right side of the road, so I say, go left, go left. And it's hard to figure out, okay, where am I right now? How does this particular teaching apply to me? Am I left, or am I right, or where am I? There are, however, a couple of Ajahns who did write more systematically, and I'll be focusing on their teachings as a way of kind of giving you a framework for the, for the teachings. Um, We'll be discussing three Ajahns, as you saw in the reading. We have Ajahn Man, Ajahn Li, and Ajahn Mahabua. Um, Ajahn Man, of course, is one of the founders of the tradition. He never wrote anything except for a poem that he kept secret until, and they didn't find it until after he died. It was quite a long poem about the practice. Um, he actually asked Ajahn Li to be the one who wrote things down systematically. I think he saw early on that Ajahn Li was, had that kind of mind. And he'd asked him to be responsible for formulating the kind of the framework for the teachings. Um, you look at many of John Lee's books; they read like just barely fleshed out, fleshed out outlines of ways of kind of organize the teachings in a way that was more systematic. And John Mahabua was another one who was tended to be more systematic in the way he approached things. So one of the reasons we focus on style, though, is because most of the teachings are in a kind of impromptu, kind of ad hoc kind of form. The second reason there's an emphasis on style is there is a tendency in Thailand itself 
to boil the teachings of a particular down, a teacher down to soundbite interpretations. Um, you know, John Mun was, excuse me, John Mahabu was all about fighting the defilements, and John Cha is all about letting go, letting go, which is not really true of either teacher. I mean, they, those are certainly points that they emphasized, but they had lots of other ways of teaching as well. With a John Cha, for example, there's there's a story about the monk who, after a storm, was staying in a hut with half of the roof blown off, and the John Cha was going around the hut, excuse me, going around the monastery, checking up on the damage from the storm. He found the monk with half the roof blown off, and he was asking the monk, "Why aren't you doing something about the roof?" And the monk says, "I'm practicing equanimity." And the John Cha said, "That's the equanimity of a water buffalo. Fix the roof." <laughs> And if you know anything about Thai, you call somebody a water buffalo, that's pretty strong. Um, <laughs> uh, another case, with, again, with Ajahn Chah. He was invited into the palace one time. The king would, one of the interesting fact, uh, factors about the forest tradition was toward the 1970s and 80s, uh, the king became very interested within the tradition and actually studied with some of the Ajahns. And one time he invited Ajahn Chah with two other Ajahns to the, the palace for a meal. And it was during a time when there were student demonstrators in the streets. The army was calling, it was wanting to put an end to the demonstrations. The demonstrations were asking for the king to step in and protect them from the army. And so he asked the Ajahns, you know, what, what should I do? And the, Ajahn Chah was the least senior of the monks there, so the other two spoke first. And both of them emphasized that the, teacher, the, the, excuse me, the king should practice equanimity. And finally got to a John Chan. He says, well, equanimity, yes, but you have to apply equanimity with discernment. And so a John Chan was not just letting go, letting go. Um, they, they even have this, this tendency of the ties to boil the teachings down to a soundbite. They also boil people down to a particular kind of little phrases or, or um, slogans. There's a museum now at Wadasokaram, which is a John Lee's monastery, where they have the statues of 28 Ajahns cast in bronze. And at the base of each statue, there's a distinctive feature of the Ajahn, like Ajahn Lee had really strong concentration. Ajahn Sawat gained awakening while he was walking. Um, and each of the Ajahns has a little something like that. And I must admit, I, I really objected to that. You know, you think, would you want your whole life to be boiled down to one little phrase? <laughs> the other problem, that why the emphasis is on style rather than substance, is the way Westerners have transmitted the teachings. Um, many of us came to the forest tradition from other backgrounds. A lot of people came to, say, a John Cha with his, from coming from a Zen background, and so when they were listening to a John Cha's Dharma talks, that was what they were listening for. Was the, you know the Zen in a John Cha. Other people happened to come to the forest tradition through background in Abhidhamma, and they would look for kind of Abhidhamma issues or would translate the teachings of the t teachers in line with what they had learned of the Abhidhamma. So something kind of skewed in a lot of, especially about the early transmit translations coming coming to us. So these are some of the reasons why substance tends to get obscured, and the emphasis gets more and more on style. Now this is not to deny the importance of style. In fact. Um, the role of humor in, is not just a teaching technique, it's also kind of a survival technique. When you're practicing and if you can learn how to laugh at your own defilements, that gives you a leg up on the problem. If you can't laugh at yourself, you're going to have a lot of problems as a, 
as a meditator. We don't often hear, especially with a John Mun. You've probably seen pictures of a John Mun. There's one particularly famous one where it's looked like he's drilling through you with his eyes. Um, that partly has to do with, um, well, they didn't use Photoshop back in those days, but they did have ways of retouching the photos. I've seen the original of that photo, and it's not nearly as scary as, as, <laughs> as the version that you see nowadays. Um, and even he, though, had, is reputed to have an excellent sense of humor. Um, one story that a John Fuhrung told me, some of his humor doesn't translate because a lot of it has to do with playing with words, but there was one story that a John Fuhrung mentioned when he went to stay with a John Mun. At that time, he was still young and good-looking, and there was a community of nuns living down the road. And the monks would often go past their community, and some of the nuns would put food in the monks' bowl. And there was one nun in particular who seemed to get interested in a John Fu, and she started knitting little you know, containers for his forks and knives and doing a, you know, fixing special central Thai food for him. And John Mun noticed this. And so he's, first he took, you know, was looking after a John Fu and wanted to see what his state of mind was, and John Fu was, was not really interested. So he decided to help the nun. And so it was one time the nuns came for an instruction, and a John Mun started out by asking him if they were observing the eight precepts, and they said yes. And he tells the, told the story of Lady Wisaka, one of the Buddha's main disciples. She's seeing a group of people observing the eight precepts in different groups. And so she went around to the different groups and asked them, why are you observing the eight precepts? She went first to a group of old people, and they said, well, we're observing the eight precepts because we want to go to heaven after we die. And she went from group to group, to group and then finally got to a group of young women and asked them, why are you observing the eight precepts? And the women said, we want something better than heaven. We want a husband. And John Fung said, that was the end of the special little knitted things and the special food and, and all that stuff. So John Mun did have his, his, his sense of humor. Okay. However, it, it is important to see that there is a sort of underlying set of teachings that um, undergird the way they taught and undergird the way um, the individual teachings should be understood. When you see the large, larger framework, it helps you understand this is how this teaching fits in that particular situation. This is especially important because one of the most distinctive ways in which the forest tradition approaches right view, or the, uh, the whole element of discernment in the path, is that it's viewed as a strategy. You apply right view because it is a correct strategy, not so much that the Buddha is trying to teach you a, you know, a vision of, well, this is the way reality is, and this is the way things have to be, and once you see reality in this way, then that's the end of the problem. It's more that these are the views, these are the perceptions that you apply to your own defilements, that you apply to your own um, the problem of suffering in your suffering or stress in your mind, and you have to know which teaching to apply at which time. Which is why the teachers and teachers themselves tend to be very varied in the way they approach things. Now, the particular source of their teachings, I mean, they, um, the forest tradition was very proud of the fact that it was not a scholarly tradition, and they would often say, you know, we're basing our teachings on our practice, not so much on scholarship. But there was a scholarship that underlay what they were doing. There was a reform movement in the early 20th century. It was started by Prince Munkut, who later became Rama IV. Um, if you ever saw The King and I, it was Yul Brenner. Or who, who played who played Rama the Fourth in the last remake of that? Some Chinese, some Chinese actor, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, that movie, by the way, both those movies, by the way, are banned in Thailand because of the unflattering portrait that they give of the king. Prior to becoming king, though, he was a monk for 28 years. And we'll talk a little bit more in detail about that tomorrow when we get more into the history. But he, he started a, re, a reform movement which basically was reclaiming the Pali Canon as kind of the genuine source of the Buddhist teachings. Um, now this is something that goes against what, what the, the, current, excuse me, the current scholarly interest right now. If you go into academia, it's all about how the Pali Canon cannot be taken as an authoritative source of what the Buddha taught. We have to look at the Chinese versions, the Tibetan versions, and kind of triangulate from those. There's also a, a movement in the scholarly world now to look at the more medieval texts and say well, these are just as valid, this is just an important part of the Buddhist tradition as, as the Pali Canon. But for the point of view of someone within the tradition and is, is really concerned about how you put an end to suffering, the Pali Canon is by far you know, the closest we have to what the Buddha taught and it gives the best instructions on how you deal with the problem of suffering. Um, sometimes it's Rama the Fourth's or Prince Mongkut's reforms are seen as his response to Western influences coming into Thailand at the time. But if you actually look at the timetable, he was into this reform or in concern for reform and concern for getting back to the original sources well before he was able to speak English, well before he was having any contact with Westerners. So this was kind of an internal reform within the tradition itself. It was based on his attempts to recover the text, especially the canon, and particularly on issues surrounding the Vinaya, that gave the foundation for the forest tradition to get going. I mean, there was there's a Vinaya textbook which was which was done by one of his students, which became the kind of manual for the forest tradition on how you observe the monks' rules. Information about different suttas, different teachings, came through his reforms, and then it was the, the forest tradition was informed by this particular um, reform movement that happened earlier in the 19th century. Um, still, they, you know, they say you start with some basic concepts that you've derived from the canon, but then your understanding is going to have to come from your own practice. Um, the canon itself talks about three levels of discernment. There's the discernment that comes from listening or reading, the discernment comes from thinking things through, and then there's the discernment that comes from actually developing your mind. And the forest tradition, as, as the, the canon itself says, is that third level of discernment that's most important. And it's in this that you begin to realize that you use the traditions as a tool, as strategies, to get to arrive at release. That was another point that was distinctive about the teaching, was um, even Rama the Fourth or Prince Mongkut had had some doubts about whether Nirvana was still possible nowadays. And then when his son, Rama V, came into power, um, he was really concerned more than anything else with the threat that was being posed by Britain and France. So they were kind of nibbling in from Burma and Malaysia and Cambodia and Laos. And basically the, you know, the, the issue between the French and the British was who was going to get which part of Thailand. And the Thais, of course, were saying, we don't want anybody to get us. And so he decided to press the monkhood into service in order to set up a, a, a national education system, which he felt that would be one of the ways of keeping the, the, the Westerners at bay, is if Thailand turns itself into a modern nation-state. You need educators, where well, you're going to get them. The most educated people in the time were the monks. 
And so it became official government policy that nirvana is no longer possible, jhana is no longer possible, monks should therefore be pressed into service as elementary school teachers. Can you imagine a John Bunn? <laughs> I met a woman one time who actually was a young girl toward the end of his life and knew him at that time. He taught her how to read. And he apparently he was a strict disciplinarian. But I can't see him in front of a class. You know, spouting out the, the government textbooks and the fact that he was not pressed into that or did not allow himself to be pressed into that. And we, we have a lot of debt to his ability to slip out of that dragnet. Um, so one of the, but still one of his main contributions was um, with the fact that you know, release is still possible, nirvana is still possible, the practice of jhana is still possible. Um, and that, that right there was quite revolutionary. Other things in the, in the tradition that indicate how they see right view as a tool, um, we'll be going into more detail. One is when they talk about the distinction between um, what is conventional and what is not conventional. If you looked in the commentaries, they would talk about there's conventional truths and then there are ultimate truths. Um, conventional truths would be like, you know, you are a person. We talked, you know, we talked about people doing this, people doing that. On the ultimate level, according to the commentary, you would talk about you know, the aggregates doing this or the sense spheres doing that. In the forest tradition, they don't make that distinction. Their distinction instead is between what is conventional and what is release. The meaning here being that even discussions of aggregates and sense spheres, that is also conventional truth. The only thing that is not a matter of convention is the actual experience of release or actual experience of nirvana. Um, secondly, uh, there's, they really encourage you to question the three characteristics of inconstancy, stress, and not-self. They point up the fact that um, certain things are constant, certain things are pleasurable, certain things can be taken as yourself at certain times. And the different Ajahns will approach this issue in different ways. Um, in terms of constancy, you'll see in the reading for John Munn, he says, your mind is inconstant, but the way of the world is constant. In other words, things follow a certain regular pattern as they arise and pass away. And so there is that element of constancy there. And John Chaw talks about that constancy in the same way. And John Lee tends to talk about constancy in terms of concentration. In other words, something nicha, which is the opposite of anicha, is something that you can actually do and you create states of mind that are more constant, pleasurable, and more under your control. But then once you see both of what is constant and what is inconstant, all the Ajahns would say, ultimately you have to let go of both. Another point related to you know, the wisdom or discernment coming from development, you'll see in Ajahn Lee's discussion of um, the Satipatthana, the establishing of mindfulness, are various qualities that you bring to the practice. There's mindfulness, there's alertness, and ardency. And for him, ardency is the wisdom factor. It's through our ardent desire to give rise to skillful qualities in the mind that we gain insight into the mind. You don't gain insight into the mind just kind of watching things arising and passing away, but you, you actually try to get certain things to arise, try to get certain things to pass away. And in the course of doing that, you begin to understand your mind a lot better. So it's through your ardency and trying to be skillful that you develop wisdom. And again, you're not trying to arrive at a view of reality, you're developing insight into the activities of mind by developing them. 
And you focus on the qualities or what the, the fabrications in the mind as to the ones outside. Um, and John Fuang one time received a letter from a, a man who eventually became one of his students from Singapore. And the man was talking about how he was practicing Dharma in daily life by whatever, whatever he noticed. He said he would notice how it was in constant stressful, not self. Um, you're watching TV, you're noticing how the, the pictures on the TV were in constant stressful, not self. Um, and John Fuang told me to write back and say, look, the problem is not with the TV, the problem is with your mind. <laughs> and your mind is in constant stressful, not self. Look in there, as that's where the source of the problem is. In other words, he said, look at what is saying in constant stressful, not self. That's where the problem is. Um, now the importance of all this is, um, for, is twofold. One is, there is a tendency, and this is something you will see referred to Often in the canon, and excuse me, often in the commentaries. This is one of the few commentarial teachings that the forest tradition picked up and really ran with, is what they call the corruptions of insight. When you are practicing along and you suddenly become convinced that you've received, you've attained awakening, and it's not the real thing, but you're very strongly convinced that it is. And one of the worst ways of setting yourself up for that kind of experience is um, when you finally were saying you see that there is no self, or you see how everything is in constant, or everything is just nothing but stress. Um, to get past that, they'll talk about how, okay, it may be true, but you have to get beyond true and false. And this is what they mean, is that you're, you're a vision of this, this has got to be true, this is the way things actually are. You've got to learn how to get past that, otherwise you're going to get stuck on that level. And John Lee talks about various ways of getting past that, one of, one of which is whatever insight you gain, ask yourself, okay, to what extent is this not true? Or in what circumstances would it be not true? And that can help kind of pull you out of that fixation that you get on a particular view of reality that may come from the practice. And then finally, of course, is um, John Mun's teaching that when you finally reach nirvana, it's actually beyond the, the Four Noble Truths. I mean, even the Third Noble Truth is not nirvana in his teachings, because the Third Noble Truth has a duty that you do, and then when the, actual, the actual experience of nirvana is something beyond all activities, therefore beyond all duties. Because language is an activity, language itself cannot be there in the awakening experience. And so in that sense, language is used, and language, even the language of right view, is a kind of convention that leads you to an experience which is beyond conventions, beyond views. Um, that's kind of the main thrust of how they approach the Dharma in the forest tradition. So those are the topics we'll be covering in the course of the weekend. Are there any questions? We'll be going into this in more detail later on, but if there's anything that strikes you right now that you'd like to ask about? Or is everyone too fried from driving here? <laughs> Get my glasses on so I can see hands. Nothing? Jerry? Why did the pilot can fall out of favor? They really don't know. Um, there was in the 17th century there were some Dutchmen who went to Ayutthaya. They basically went as traders, but the Dutch, when they went to places like Indonesia and Thailand and those places, they doubled as anthropologists. And they went around and they would study the culture of the of the countries they went to. And there was someone who actually wrote a report back, and it's one of the few re reports we have about what life was like in Ayutthaya back in the 17th century, because most of the, the Thai records were burned by the Burmese. And he talks about going around to different monasteries and asking the monks, 
But what is this religion you're practicing? What you know, see you're meditating? How are you? What kind of meditation are you practicing? And they would talk about meditating on visualizing syllables in the moon and syllables in the sun. And when I first read that, I said, "Boy, did he get a lot of misinformation from them." But then, as you you know, then I got began to read more widely in Buddhism and realized, well, that's a tantric practice. You know, the visualization of, you know, there's om in this one, or ah in, in this celestial body, and other syllables in the different celestial bodies, and then you're visualizing that. Um, so we know that in the 17th century, in Ayutthaya, there was very little mention of any of the meditation techniques that we now associate with the Pali Canon. And this is one of the things that Prince Monko did, was he actually revived practice of recollection of the Buddha, breath meditation, contemplation of the body, death meditation. Um, the Brahma Viharas. So when it fell out, we have we have no idea. We do know that there were efforts beginning at the very. <laughs> it's much better than it's blinking. Yes, <laughs> there were efforts in the 13th century to bring the Pali Canon kind of back into favor. And then again, in the 15th century, the, there was a reform movement in southern Burma, which spilled over into Thailand somewhat. So there'd be these periodic movements where they would, the idea of being within the tradition, you have to go back to the sources, which would be the Pali Canon, and, and find that and bring that out. And it would last for a little while, and then things would just kind of disappear. When it dissipated, were they bringing in other practices from the northern schools, or were they just well, I mean, obviously there was tantrism in Thailand from way back. Um, they, they can, they've dug up, you know, there's certain statues of different tantric deities that they can recognize from the iconography that these were tantric deities. They were dug up from the sixth century in Lopurdi. Um, so you know that those practices were there. Did that come from India, or was it just? Probably came through India. But I mean, the thing about tantrism is it really fits very well with any kind of animistic, um, magical. Kind of tradition. I mean, that's how it really, you know, the Tibetans really glommed onto that because it was so in line with their animism. And when it comes into Thailand, it, would, it was came into line with Thai animism as well. And there's there's a certain mindset to, which finds you know these magical practices really appealing. I got into an argument with a Harvard professor one time about this. He said, "You really have to have a much more open mind about these practices. They're a fascinating part of the Buddhist tradition." And I said, "Look, I've met these people. They want power over other people, and it's kind of creepy when you know, when someone's power over you. You want to stay away, you know." Um, and so it was, but there is that it appeals to that kind of mindset, and periodically you'll see throughout. Theravada history, that there's this movement, well, let's get back to the sources, because the real problem is people are suffering. Why don't we focus on that? And instead of trying to impose power on other people, why don't we work on healing the problem of suffering within ourselves? And so it seems, seems to be kind of a periodic you know, return to sources. For the tantric practice itself, does it say that it leads towards awakening? In Tibetan, they do. In the Tibetan tradition, they do. Um, in the Thai tradition, I, you really don't know, because a lot of that stuff was actually destroyed by the current dynasty. Rama I, after he basically you know, drove the final Burmese out of Thailand, he said one of the reasons why Ayutthaya fell was because of all of this degeneracy that had happened. He called it sorcery. And so he sent his 
soldiers out to destroy all the, the shrines that they could find that would be you know, devoted to these kind of practices. Um, under Rama V, a lot of the textbooks that may have survived from that time, the few remaining textbooks, as, when they found them, they burned them. So it's really hard to trace exactly what was, you know, what was actually going on. Yes. Well, that's how they, um, when they talk about this issue about the three characteristics, there are certain things that are self, and there are certain things that are not self. They, the, the forest tradition has never gone for the teaching that there is no self. And if you, you know, if you say that to an Ajahn, John, he'd say, "What? <laughs> never heard of this." <laughs> um, and I'll tell you a little bit later that Ajahn Mahabhu actually got into a, a controversy. Can you imagine that the issue of self and not self actually got into the newspapers in Thailand a couple of years back? Back in the mid, back in the late nineties, but for the forest tradition and, and some of the writings I, I brought out here are the ones where John Mahabu and John Lee talk about how, okay, not self is a strategy. You use it as part of the path, but we're not to arrive at the view that there is no self, and you don't use the view that there is no self along the path. You just learn how to disidentify with certain things that you have been identifying with in the past, and you realize, okay, this is you know this is problematic. I've got to let go. But a John, John Mahabu's analogy is you have certain tools that you use to do a job. Then when the job is done, you put the tools down. And so not-self would be a tool. The, th the concept of not-self would be a tool. So that piece I wrote on the not-self strategy, that was not original with me. Okay, should we meditate for a while? Two other things before we meditate. Um, Part of living in the forest tradition um, was being sticking very scrupulously to the vineyard rules, and particularly a set of rules that were called the protocols of Watta in Pali. And among the Watta are when you move into a place, how you clean it up before you settle in. There was one time I was in Bangkok, and I arrived, and I was you know cleaning up the floor of the place where I was going to stay. And this Australian monk, who had been in Burma, I'd known him from several years before. He came. By, he came by the monastery just on the off chance that I might be there, and there I was. And he saw me wiping down the floor, and he says, "I was just seeing some other monk in, in the, the other monastery where I was, and he was wiping down the floor too. What is it with you Thai monks? Don't you have anybody to wipe the floors down for you?" <laughs> I said, "No." And this is, I said, "This is part of our part of our tradition. You look after the place where you're staying." Um, so tonight's homework after the, after the meditation is go to your room and clean it up. <laughs> 
don't just dump things in your room and look, make it look nice. There will not be an inspection, but <laughs> just to put you in the mood for <laughs> thinking about the forest tradition, make sure your, your room is neat before you go to sleep. Okay, okay let's meditate. Of the various Ajans in the forest tradition, Ajahn Lee was the one who most focused most on breath meditation. And so the guided meditation I'll be giving you tonight is based on his method. Yeah. Start with thoughts of goodwill. They say that Ajahn Mun, every morning when he woke up, every afternoon when he woke up from his nap, every evening before he went to bed, would spend some time radiating thoughts of goodwill in all directions. So you think about what does goodwill mean? You're wishing that people will find happiness. And you know the happiness is something that has to be found through action. So your wish of goodwill to other people will not necessarily make them happy. What you're wishing for is that they would understand the causes of true happiness and act on them. And this is a kind of thought you can develop towards anyone, even people who are unskillful or very unskillful. If they could understand the sources of true happiness, they would change their ways. This, of course, applies to you. If you are unskillful, may you change your ways too. This is one of the reasons why we meditate. So pose that thought in the mind. May I be truly happy? May I, may I understand the causes of true happiness and be able to act on them? Because your true happiness comes from source, resources within. Other people's true happiness comes from resources within themselves. There's no necessary conflict between your true happiness and that of others. This is one of the reasons why goodwill can become in, unlimited. So spread the same thought to other people. Start with people who are close to your heart, your family, very close friends. May they find true happiness too. And then spread those thoughts out in ever-widening circles, the people you know well and like. People you like even though you don't know them so well. People you're more neutral about. And people you don't like.
spread thoughts of goodwill to people you don't even know. And not just people, living beings of all kinds, in all directions, east, west, north, south, above and below, out to infinity. May we all find true happiness in our hearts. Now bring your attention to the breath. The word breath here means not only the air coming in and out of the lungs, but also the flow of energy that courses through the body. Which occurs on many levels. The most obvious is the flow of energy that allows the air to come in and out of the lungs. So as you breathe in and breathe out, notice how the breathing process feels throughout the body. If your mind wanders off, just drop whatever thought that is and you'll be back at the breath. If it wanders off ten times, a hundred times, bring it back ten times, a hundred times. Don't get discouraged. Each time you come back, reward yourself with a breath that feels particularly gratifying, so that the mind will be more and more inclined to want to come back. And of course, if one breath is gratifying, you don't stop with one. If there are any pains in the body, you don't have to focus on them right now. Try to focus on the parts of the body that can be made comfortable by the way you breathe. You can try long breathing, short breathing, deep, shallow, heavy, fast. Or any combination of those. You can experiment to see what kind of breathing feels best. Or if after experimenting you can't really decide which feels best, you can just pose that thought in the mind each time you breathe in. What kind of breathing would feel best right now? And see how the body responds on its own.
Now as the breathing becomes comfortable, there is a danger that you would leave the breath and go to the feeling of comfort. But it's because your attention is steadily with the breath that the comfort exists. That would eventually destroy the feeling of comfort itself. And at the same time, you might begin to lose focus. So once the breath becomes comfortable, the next step is to breathe aware of the whole body. And a good way to build up to that is to go through the body section by section to familiarize yourself with how the breathing process feels in the different parts of the body. So you can get the whole thing working together in a coordinated way. So start down around the navel. Locate that part of the body in your awareness and watch it for a while as you breathe in and breathe out. see what rhythm of breathing feels best there. If you feel any tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax. So that no new tension builds up as you breathe in and you don't hold on to any tension as you breathe out. If you feel any tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax. Now move your attention over to the right, to the lower right-hand corner of the abdomen and follow the same steps there. In other words, one, locate that part of the body in your awareness. Two, watch it for a while as you breathe in, breathe out to see what kind of breathing feels best there. And three, if there's any tension or tightness there, allow it to dissolve away. I.e., breathe in a way that helps it dissolve away.
Now move your attention to the left, to the lower left-hand corner of the abdomen, and follow the same steps there. Now bring your attention to the solar plexus, the area right in front of the stomach, and follow the same steps there. And bring your attention to the right, to the right flank. And then to the left, to the left flank.
Now bring it up to the middle of the chest. As you focus on the chest, try to be especially sensitive to the area around the heart, to breathe in a way that feels most nourishing for the heart. Now move your attention to the right, to the spot where the chest and the shoulder meet. And then, then to the same spot on the left. Now bring attention to the base of the throat. 
Now bring your attention to the middle of the head. As you focus here, try not to put too much pressure on the head because the nerves of the head tend to be overworked. As you breathe in, think of the breath energy coming in not only through the nose but also through the eyes and the ears. In from the back of the head, down from the top of the head, going deep, deep, deep into the brain to nourish every little thing you can find in the head, anything that needs breath energy. And as you breathe out, think of the breath energy radiating out in all directions. Dissolving away any tension you might feel in the jaws or on the eyes, anywhere in the head. Bring your attention to the back of the neck, right at the base of the skull. As you breathe in, think of breath energy entering there and then going down through the neck, the shoulders, the arms, out to the tips of the fingers. And as you breathe out, think of it radiating out from all of those parts of the body into the air.
Now keeping your attention focused to the back of the neck as you breathe in, think of the breath energy entering there and now going down both sides of the spine, down to the tailbone. And as you breathe out, think of it radiating out from the whole back into the air. As you get more sensitive to the back, try to notice if you're holding more tension on one side than the other. And if you are, see if you can relax that side and consciously keep it relaxed all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out. Moving your attention down to the base of the spine, think of the breath energy entering there and now going down through the hips, the legs, out to the tips of the toes. And then radiating out from all those parts of the body into the air. And again, if you notice that you're holding more tension in one side of any of those parts of the body than the other, think if you can see if you can consciously relax that side and keep it relaxed all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out.
And that completes one cycle through the body. And if you'd like, you can go through the body starting at the navel again to pick up any patterns of tension you may have missed the first time around. <clears throat> you can keep that up until you're ready to settle down. Then choose any one spot in the body that seems most congenial. Allow your attention to settle there, and then from that spot to spread out and fill the whole body. So you're aware of the whole body breathing in, the whole body breathing out. The range of your awareness will have a tendency to shrink, so each time you breathe in, remind yourself whole body. And particularly when you breathe out, remind yourself whole body. Don't let your range of awareness shrink as the breath goes out. And allow the breath to find whatever rhythm feels best for the body right now. Your main duty is to try to maintain the sense of centered but broad awareness. It's healing for the body, healing for the mind. Because it's still and all around, it provides a really good foundation for insight to arise. <clears throat>
Now, before you leave meditation, remember there are three steps to leaving it properly. The first is to reflect back on the session. And if there's any one point where it seemed the mind was most at ease, most centered, ask yourself, what was your breath like at the time? Where were you focused? And what had you, had you been doing leading up to that point? <clears throat> if you can remember, hold that in mind and see if you can apply it the next time you meditate. And if you can get the same results. If you don't get the same results, it's simply a sign that you didn't notice clearly enough this time. Try to be more observant the next time around. It's in this way that the meditation becomes a skill. The second step is to think of whatever sense of ease or well-being you felt during the meditation and dedicate it to others. Either specific people you know are suffering right now, or all living beings in all directions. May we all find peace and well-being in our hearts. And finally, remind yourself that even though you open your eyes, you can still be aware of the dimension of breath energy in the body. Try not to let your awareness of the outside world impinge on that or squeeze it out. As you go through the day, try to make sure that the, at least the quality of the breath energy in the body is open and free-flowing. And if you sense that it's seizing up at any one time or that you've lost it, reestablish your awareness, release whatever tension there is, so that there is a sense of well-being that comes with being present in the present moment. This way, if you can keep this up, then the next time you sit down and meditate, you'll be right there. It's like keeping a dog on a short leash. If you keep your dog on a long leash, it's going to get wrapped around people's legs, lampposts, benches, who knows what. And when the time comes to call it, you have to spend a lot of time unraveling the leash. But if you keep the dog on a short leash, there's more continu continuity between your sitting meditation and your daily activities. And it's in this way that meditation builds up a momentum. And with that thought in mind, you can open your eyes. As I said at the beginning of the, the evening, the forest tradition was seen as very untie as it was getting started.
<clears throat> and that'll be one of the main points, kind of the take home for the weekend, is that really practicing the Buddha's teachings is countercultural. I know John Fuang would he'd get quite sarcastic tone in his voice when he talked about calls to change the Buddhist teaching to be in time with, with a particular, bring it up to date. As John Mahabhu would say, the fact that the teachings are timeless means they're always up to date. In fact, they're more up to date than up to date things. So as we think about bringing these teachings into our own lives, we have to try not to let our own attachment to Western culture get in the way of what's required to put an end to suffering. There are times when we have to put our cultural assumptions aside and focus in on what is, as John Mun would say, the cultures of the noble ones, the customs of the noble ones. As I said, if you want to find a noble attainment, you have to adopt the customs of noble people, behave in line with those customs, whatever the local customs, wherever you may be living, might be. As he said, when people said, you're not being Thai, you're not being Lao, he said, the customs of Thai and Lao people are the customs of people with defilements. And that applies to Western culture as well. So think about putting the Dharma ahead of your culture rather than trying to make the Dharma fit in with the culture. This is in line with another teaching that was one of the most foundation, foundational teachings in the forest tradition, which is that you practice the Dharma in line with the Dharma, meaning that you don't try to reshape the Dharma in your own image and try to reshape yourself in line with the Dharma. Any last questions before we go home for night tonight? Changing the Dharma, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have it in Thai. In fact, it's actually happening in the Thai forest tradition now. Now that it's become more and more part of the culture, you see the life in the monasteries is becoming to fit more and more into Thai ways of doing things, <clears throat> which is a standard pattern that's happened throughout history, is that you have rapport movements that finally, you know, after a couple of generations, get kind of sucked back into the culture again. And so many of the Johns are you know, trying to we can do a kind of a rear guard action to make sure that this happens as slowly as possible. Um, but it is something to keep keep in mind that even in in countries where the culture is you know, Buddhist, there's a lot of there's still a lot of anti-dharma elements within the culture. 
and even more so here, we know our dominant culture is not Buddhist at all. You know, you get people doing meditation, mindfulness. I was just reading an article on, a new, on an airline magazine about executives practicing mindfulness and meditation. And you know that if an airline magazine is picking up meditation, something's really wrong. I mean, <laughs> and of course, it's all about you know being more creative, lowering your blood pressure, um, being able to handle multitasking a lot better. There's nothing wrong with that, but for a lot of people, that's where it ends. You know, there's a sign that things kept pulled into the Dharma gets used for the purposes of the mainstream culture rather than for the purposes that it was originally intended for. I personally would rather not see Buddhism become mainstream in America. I mean, that would include things like we'd have Buddhist monasteries with those little signs up front that have stupid puns, like the churches do nowadays. You know. Bad sign, bad sign. <laughs> so, okay. They'll be ringing the bell at 6 tomorrow morning, and we'll be here at 6.30. So get a good night's rest. But make sure your room is clean before you <laughs> go to bed. There's something very calming about putting things in order. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.